Well, you know, we finished our series last week on 1 Peter, and you might know that we're starting a new series today on 1 Thessalonians. It's not a totally dissimilar book to 1 Peter, but it certainly does raise some different themes along the way, particularly near the end when it gets into the second coming of Christ and a little bit of what we call the last things, what we can expect in the times of the end. But it'll take us a few chapters to get there. Um, I can tell you that when Paul went to Thessalonica uh, and ministered and then left later, um, things weren't going too well for him. Um, You know, I just heard somebody talk a week ago I can't remember the context, but I remember the context. It was about somebody that, that just kind of went to a small town in the United States and in a year to start a church. In a year time, year's time, they had 900 people. And this is what they do. They go to small towns and they get these giant church started in no time and then leave and, and it's all good. Well, that's not the kind of feeling that I get that, that's what, that, that Paul experienced at that. It was quite the opposite. As he went and ministered and poured his heart out, he wasn't just building megachurch after megachurch and just planting churches and getting active. It was difficult. He was discouraged. He wasn't sure, my friends, if he was being effective. And I see that really clearly in the book of, Thess- Thess- to the book of Thessalonians, um, that he was living with this feeling of, well, maybe I failed there. Maybe I wasn't successful. And so let's get into the text, and, and you'll, you'll get some, some more of this. More, a little more background. Acts 17, Paul went to Thessalonica, which is in Macedonia, and he began to preach. Quite a few people did become converts right away, but then some of the Jews that were there in Thessalonica became jealous, and they didn't just stay home. They stirred up a mob against Paul, and Paul was forced out of town. Then he goes on to Berea. And things looked pretty good in Berea because the Bible says that the people in Berea were more noble than the Thessalonians because they would daily check the scriptures to make sure that what Paul was saying was really found in these pages, which is a a good thing to do, of course. But then, while things are moving along in Berea, some people from Thessalonica showed up in Berea to stir up trouble. They agitated the crowds in Berea, and so Paul was forced to get in his car and leave there. And he went on to Athens, and he was waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. But as he walked around the city of Athens and just saw the the monuments and the statues and the artwork, he couldn't wait any longer for Silas and Timothy, and he began to preach against the idolatry that he saw there in Athens. And he gained some interest. He garnered some interest there, but then the opposition started, and so that was the end of that. So he goes on to Corinth, and as he reflected back later, he said to the Corinthians, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, I'm not taking time to elaborate on that phrase this morning, but I want you to put it in your heart and think about it later. Paul focused on one thing, namely proclaiming Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. That is what we should be doing. When our church leaves that anchor and begins doing a bunch of other things and getting involved in a lot of other issues and concerns, I think we're losing our focus. I think every church needs to say, look, our mission is to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we're sent to do. Don't get sidetracked by all the other stuff out there that pulls and tugs at you. A church should be about Jesus Christ and him crucified, period, about the message of salvation. And when you're not hearing that much anymore, it's time to be looking for a different church. And sadly, in our country right now, a lot of churches, that is not the emphasis. It might be somewhere, but it's not the emphasis. You go through a whole Sunday morning service and not come away saying, it's about Jesus in that place. And it needs to be about Jesus. Okay, enough of that. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul. You know, he wasn't this super confident guy that just exuded confidence, like some of the people that you and I meet that we're envious of because we're all insecure. When we meet these people that just seem to exude self-confidence. That wasn't Paul. Paul says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling, but no doubt, coming full circle, knowing he had been called, that God has called him to do that, and he had no other choice but to do it, regardless of his fear and his trembling and his nervousness and anxiety and his concerns about, am I going to survive this? Like most of us, Paul probably, and I think you see this clearly, found himself often questioning his work and ministry and wondering, have I really been effective? Have I been a failure? I don't see a lot of fruit. I don't see a lot of results. I, I thought I was doing God's work. I went to these various towns and things were looking good, but then the opposition came and I had to leave town just to save my life. And as I look back, I don't, I don't see a lot of fruit. I don't see a lot of results. I find it very encouraging that Paul obviously struggled with this. I've often struggled with it. I mean, 34 years I've struggled with it. Because you can always say, well, maybe someone else could have done it better. Maybe it should be so much more, more but it's not, and I guess it's my fault. I mean, you, I, I struggle with that. I mean, who in ministry doesn't struggle with I'm not sure I'm being effective. Paul himself did. But then something really good happens. While he's in Corinth, Timothy and Silas come from Macedonia. And again, Macedonia is where Thessalonica was with good news. Good news for Paul from the believers in Thessalonica. Um, And maybe like Francis Scott Key, who was so heartened as the dawn came and he looked and he saw the stars and the stripes still flying over Fort McHenry in Baltimore, Paul was thrilled to hear some good news, some good report coming out of Thessalonica when he thought, maybe I was just an abject failure there. Maybe someone else should have gone there. They would have done it better. So it was upon upon receiving this good news from Silas and Timothy that Paul penned these words that we know as the first letter to the Thessalonians. So there's some background. Um, Reading the first 10 verses of chapter 1. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father 
you're a work of faith, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, where Thessalonica was, in Achaia, which is where Corinth was, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven... We're still waiting, by the way, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who, praise God, delivers us from the wrath that is to come. Do you sense, do you feel how encouraging it was for Paul to see that some fruit really had come from his hard work in Thessalonica? He even confesses in chapter 3 that he had been afraid this is where I'm getting this from, that even in Thessalonica, his labors had been in vain. He says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, you can sense the anguish of his soul, I sent to learn about your faith. I, I, I sense him kind of timidly saying, well, I better check and see if there's anything happening there. But I sense a timidity there, a, um, a fear, a feeling like, well, do I really want to know? For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And he gets this fantastic report that this little church in Thessalonica was doing well. That even with the opposition, the people were growing. They were being discipled. They were becoming strong in their faith. They were living lives of righteousness in the midst of a very wicked, godless culture that was mobbing, literally, against them and trying to put down their testimony in that place. Paul specifically heard three things about this little church, which we were going to hone in on this morning. He heard about their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the three things we're going to focus on this morning, and I know already you're saying to yourself, well, that's exactly what I need too. They are the three things that I need, they're the three things that Family Life Church needs too. A work produced by faith, a labor prompted by love, and an endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me hear an amen, please. Thank you. Number one, work produced by faith. If there's one obvious truth that we have to see, it's that genuine Christians, people that really are the real deer, they're, they're not just signed up for some life insurance, they don't want to go to hell, but they're genuine followers of Jesus, are going to be busy for the kingdom of God. The faith that we have will not allow us to just sit back 
and wait for heaven, but it will compel us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, We can't just sit idly by. We won't be content to sit idly by. We will have this unction. We will have this call. We will have this compelling that I need to live a life worthy of the sovereign Lord who redeemed me from hell, who paid the price for my sins. Years ago, I bought a life insurance policy on myself. It's a term policy that had a fixed premium for 20 years. And by the way, it, it, the 20 years is almost about to happen. I've got about four more years left of this policy, so you can figure out when I bought it. And I never think about this policy. I never think about it at all, except every November when I get a premium bill mailed to me from the company for $572, and I write a check for it, and I save the stub and put it in my file drawer, and that's the end of it. I don't think about the life insurance that I have. That's how a disciple doesn't respond. That's how a disciple doesn't think. We don't get saved as, okay, well, I got, I got the salvation covered, so I got eternity taken care of. Now, back to my real life, barely thinking about it. That's not a disciple of Jesus. I'm sorry, that's not a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is thinking about, I have been saved. I'm on assignment. God has a call on my life. He has a purpose for me. He has something for me to do today. What is it? Well, that's where we spend our time thinking about it, perhaps. But, but, it, but it's a, such a strong awareness that I am on assignment, that I, I want to work. I want to labor because of my faith in Christ. <clears throat> A healthy disciple becomes motivated by the work of the kingdom. Now, I don't want to talk about myself very much this morning. That's not my goal ever. But as I think about pastoring for 34 years and and the road I took to get there, one thing I noticed in my young life, even as a teenager and young adult, long before I ever even had the thought, I should be a pastor, I want to be a pastor, I had a love in my heart for God's church. I just did. Um, I, I love the church building. I love being at church. I love doing things at, at, on the property. I love being in events of the church. I was the kid they called if some the men's group wanted to play a movie. Back then it was 16 millimeter movies. You had 16 millimeter movie projectors. Nobody could operate those things. I could. And I loved it when they'd say, you know, we're going to show a movie Tuesday night. Would you come and, and set up a projector? And I did the sound and and I mean, every Lent service and Advent service, I mean, I loved being around the, the, the church. A healthy disciple is motivated by aspects of the kingdom of God. I'm not saying everybody should be like me, I'll call to be a pastor, but there should be a motivation by, of God's kingdom that drives you on, and it will look different for you than it does for me. But it's not just, well, I got my life insurance covered, I'm not going to hell. It's not like that. It's a motivation. It's an unction. It's a compelling. I've said it too many times already this morning, but it's because I, I want to make sure that, that we catch it. We are constantly asking the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? I don't know how we can really be in a, in a place of being a growing disciple unless we're constantly saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? 
Now, I'm not saying we always know the answer to the question, but I do think that there's something about being a disciple of Jesus that we're constantly saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What would you have me to do? What is my role? What is my assignment? Where do you want me to go? Are you content with where I'm at right now? Do you want me to make a major change in my life? Um, what do you want? I, that's, a, that's a question that any growing, healthy disciple is asking themselves already. When we're first saved, we're usually overwhelmed, and rightfully so, with the idea of forgiveness and the promise of heaven one day when we die, and, and rightfully so. You know, we're excited. We're thrilled to death. My sins are forgiven. And it's so freeing, it's so wonderful, it's so glorious. We're, we're obsessed, obsessed in a good kind of way with that. But the more we grow in faith, the more we start thinking, I think the Lord has a purpose for me. I think there's something special he wants me to do. He's created me for a specific reason. I'm not a clone. I'm not identical to everybody else on earth. I'm a different person with a different wiring, a different personality, different skill set, different opportunities that I've had in my life, educationally, the community we grew up in, the economic level you grew up in. And we start saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm your your child. I'm your man. I'm your woman. Ephesians says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we are called to bring kingdom influence upon our world. Um, you know, we know this, but when have we ever been so impressed as we are right now as we see the world around us falling apart to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? How am I to bring the influence of the kingdom of God to this world in its brokenness right now, its confusion, its lack of absolute truth, its um, anything goes, redefine everything. How am I to bring kingdom influence? In the same way that you sprinkle salt, all over, or you, or you, when, you, when you get the salt sugar out, you don't put it all in one place on your food, do you? You sprinkle it all around, right? You don't make a pile in the middle of the meat. Um, in the same way, God has, has put his people everywhere throughout the world. He sprinkled the world with us that we might bring a kingdom influence to bear. You know, some in Nigeria, some in the United States, some in North Chicago, some in Lake Forest, some in Canada, some in the school system, some in the police department, some in the, the hardware store. He has, like, sprinkled his saints all over the place in order to bring kingdom influence. Now, notice the order here. Our works come out of our faith. It's not vice versa. We're not saved because of the good things that we do. But if we are truly looking to Jesus for salvation, then we will do good works. We will die to our rights. We will serve people. We will lay down our lives for other people. Um, in the book of James, um, interesting book. I won't um, say what, tell you this morning what Martin Luther said about the book of James. That's a conversation for another day, I guess. But he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. So if we are healthy believers, we will have a work. There will be a work prompted by our faith. A genuine saving faith will produce the evidence of working and of serving. Number two, this is the second thing that Paul saw in the or heard about was happening in Thessalonica and was thrilled about. He heard about their labor prompted by love. In a healthy believer, it's a love for God that drives us on to work for him. It's love for God that drives us on to work for him. That might seem obvious, but the fact is, many people have busied themselves for God for the wrong reasons. And we often see it in in just a local church. The motivation should be love for God, but a lot of times there's something else that's motivating us. Some people are motivated by guilt. They're ashamed. They feel guilty about their deeds, so they just get busy doing something for God in hopes that they won't feel as guilty. Some people are trying to make up for the past. They know what a mess they made of their life before they got saved. Now they're saved. They're, they're hoping that, that somehow, maybe if I work really hard, I can make up for that instead of reveling in the fact that I don't need to go back and fix things. I don't need to go back and make up for anything. Jesus shed his blood so I am declared righteous. I don't have to go back to the past. A false belief that we earn God's favor with good works. I would declare to you today that that is constantly trying to slip its way into every last one of us. Even though we know we're not saved by works, I I think every week it tries to slip into us that we'll start thinking, well, somehow I can earn God's favor. Somehow God will be more pleased with me if I work for him. And there's this works righteousness that slips in that is completely contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, If this is confusing to you, go home and read the book of Galatians, because it's the very problem in Galatia that Paul tried to address. He says, who has bewitched you, O Galatians? Because they they had been saved by by grace. They knew that, but then they started thinking, well, you know, that's not enough. We need to start working for God. We need to work for Jesus, because that's really what God wants, and that's how you please God. And so pretty soon, it becomes a works righteousness, not a Jesus paid at all. Sometimes people are motivated by greed or selfish ambition. Uh, some people, you know, they want to be a pastor because they want, to, they want the attention. They want the accolades. It's a pride trip. It's an ego trip. They want to be recognized. I hope you don't have never felt that about me, but you might have known a pastor that you think, I think they're on an ego trip. They, they just want attention. They want accolades. And it's not about a labor prompted by love for God. It's about they like to be in the center of attention. They like everybody saying, good morning, pastor. Hi, pastor. And that, they, they get into that, okay? Even a sense of obligation or need can be a bad motivation. The surest way to burn out is to be active, 
ministering to people out of a sense of need instead of a sense of love for God. And we minister out of a sense of, well, if I don't do it, nobody else will. That's a great way to burn out. Our labor needs to be motivated by a love for God, not, well, if I don't do it, nobody else will. That won't keep you in ministry for too many years. Ministering out of love for God will keep you in ministry. It'll help you endure the hard times. It'll help you endure the opposition. It'll help you endure the times when you feel misunderstood, when you have your feelings hurt, when you feel like everybody's against you, when you feel like the world is against you. It'll keep you in ministry. And by ministry, don't just think of the local church. Think of what you're doing out there, your role in the world. When you're laboring and a love for God, it'll keep you out there able to serve, able to minister, able to, to do things with a proper motivation. It's not easy to have a life that's devoted to serving people for the sake of the kingdom. We all want to see results. We all want to see instantaneous results. Okay, I'm being effective. Um, one of the reasons I like to fix things is because you get quick results. So all you understand what I mean. You got a machine that's broken, and you diagnose it, and you fix it, and then it's just running like a song, as Johnny Cash would sing. Um, it's a good feeling, isn't it, to fix something? Well, ministry isn't like that. You never see the results that you want to see as quickly as you want to see them, and you might not see them at all, this side of heaven. And Paul himself didn't see the results he wanted. And we see this in the text. People often, this will be a surprise to you, not meet your expectations. We have to constantly remind ourselves that we're called to love people, not to judge people. We're called to love people, not to judge people. We will, as we minister to people, and again, don't just think the context of the local church, but as you serve the Lord out there in the marketplace, we will get hurt. We will be misunderstood. We will find ourselves in the occasional interpersonal conflict, none of which we asked for. Lord, this isn't why I signed up. And yet there we are, right in the middle of it. But when we attempt to serve people out of love for God, then we can draw upon his supernatural strength, which enables us to persevere, to endure, which leads us to our next point. The third thing that Paul was thrilled about when he got his report on the Thessalonians was they had an endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is critical. Many, many people start off by putting their faith in action, and they minister out of love for God, but they don't have endurance. They do it for a while. They do it well for a while, and and everybody's heartened by seeing how useful they are and how how wholehearted they are, But then all of a sudden, where are they? Where are they? (laughs) How many have you known like that who started so well and maybe went for quite a while but, but didn't really finish? All of a sudden, they were just done. They were finished all right, but they they were just had it. They were just done. There wasn't an endurance. How many of you known who 
who maybe just got weary. Instead of, of constantly working and serving in high gear, it's like they're just in low gear now. We can all understand from the short term, okay, they're going through something. But one year becomes two years, becomes three years, they go and like, wait, what happened? How, but they used to be in fifth gear. Now they're like just in first gear all the time. How many of we have known who were running a good race, active and involved and leading, but we don't even know where they are today. And no clue where they went. What happened? Sometimes, I would propose to you, they went into running the race with the wrong expectations. They thought they were going to see some good results, quick results, lasting results, and yet it never happened. It got lonely. It got really tiring. It got wearying. Now, some of these people are described in the parable of the sower. I mean, sometimes, let's face it, sometimes some weren't really saved to begin with. They were just kind of all caught up in the excitement of the moment and it sounded good on paper, um, <clears throat> but there was no root there. And they just, whatever seed was planted, it got scooped up and they were gone. Sadly, I can think of people over the years in this church that were like that, that you know, were here for a short term and it was like, a, it was like lighting a sparkler on 4th of July. I mean, there was just so much energy there, so much excitement, and just like that, sometimes in a matter of weeks, it's gone. I mean, not even years, just we like, what was that? What was that? I just scratched my head and go on. Like, well, Lord, it's your church, you know. There's others that, um, like the parable is over. They, they just don't have enough roots. There's not enough roots. And in the time of testing, they fall away. You know, there, there was something there, something genuine there, but they couldn't endure because the roots weren't going down deep. And so when the time of testing comes, and it will always come to all of us, um, they too were gone. Some had their zeal snuffed out by, as the parable of the Thor says, by the cares of the world, just dealing with life. The pressures, the stresses, you know, the flat tires, the tenders of snow you have to snow blow. The, well, the car just broke down. Well, the roof is leaking. Well... They're laying off people at work. Just the cares of life. You'll never get away from the cares of this life until they close the lid on you. Take it from me. Doesn't matter what age you're at. Doesn't matter how much money you accumulate. You will have the cares of this life. Some people have their zeal snuffed out by that. Some have it snuffed out from the pleasures of life, the riches and the, the fun things in life. And many are tripped up. And by the way, this is not mentioned in the parable of the sower, but I cannot leave it out. Many are tripped up by, you ready for this? Offense. And I don't mean offense like you have on the side of your yard. We're talking about offense, O-F-F-E-N-S-E. Along the way, somehow, somewhere, they got offended. And they couldn't move past that. Offense is first cousins with unforgiveness. 
Because offense becomes our focus. It's what we think about. It's what we see. It's like a, you know, um, my optic is the right word, but it's just a, it's all we see. It's like the blinders on a horse. All you see is, I was offended. I was offended. He offended me. She offended me. And they stay stuck there many times forever. It will rot the bones. It will rot the bones, being offended. We can't even see what it's doing to us. It's like hypertension. Hypertension is known as a silent killer. You don't know that it's about to take your life. It's silent. You don't feel any different, and yet it'll kill you. That's what offense will do. You don't see it. You don't know you're stuck in it. Nobody seems to be able to point it out to you because, you, oh, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Everybody knows, though, you're holding on to an offense. And it will utterly destroy your ability to endure in doing worthwhile deeds for Jesus. Knowing all the potential pitfalls will put into perspective for us why Paul was so heartened to hear that the Thessalonians were doing so well. Uh, we can take a closer look at the church of Thessalonica. Um, it's actually described in Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amp- Ampipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this, but think about that term, who have turned the world upside down. Can I say to you today that God intends for Christians to turn the world upside down? Are you turning your world upside down? End of thought. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So these believers in Thessalonica clearly didn't have a comfortable life. They didn't have a comfortable church. They were probably getting their tires slashed out in the parking lot while they were having service. But they'd come back the next Sunday and let it happen again. And they'd come back for Bible study and let it happen again. They were being persecuted. They were being marginalized. They were suffering for their faith. But they went on ministering, went on loving. They went on suffering. And Paul was so encouraged because of their endurance. And you became imitators of us, he says, and of the Lord, for he received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How many times have I said to one of you privately, don't let anybody steal your joy? You're thinking, well, you never said it to me. Well, I'm saying it to you right now. (laughs) 
Don't let anybody steal your joy. Don't let the, the world we live in today, the brokenness of it, the weightiness of what's happening in the government, don't let it steal your joy. They maintained the joy of the Holy Spirit, even though they were suffering sorely, having their tires slashed in the church parking lot during service. And Paul was so encouraged by that. These people, they understood the gospel. They did not have a fair-weather faith that praised God when they were being blessed and mumbled and grumbled when their picnic was rained out. Despite severe suffering, they embraced Jesus. Despite personal cost, they were not turning back. And they had the joy of the Holy Spirit. Boy, I love that. I love that. Don't let anybody steal your joy. As long as Jesus is on his throne, as long as your sins have been forgiven and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, why would you let somebody reach in and steal your joy? Well, don't you know how bad things are right now? I, for one, do not intend to let somebody steal my joy. Now, that doesn't mean I don't get depressed. It doesn't mean I'm always great at it, but I don't have any intention of letting anybody, Satan himself, rob me of my joy. And I think you see this example right here. They pressed on because their hope in Jesus and in their hope in his return. And the impact that this little church had, I wish they gave a number of how many people they had in attendance. I picture something very small, but I don't really know the size of it. But the impact that we can have is the same as the impact that that, what I'll call that little church in Thessalonica can have. Paul says in verse 7, they became a model to all the believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Now sadly, boy, I probably shouldn't even say this, the churches that become models today are not the churches that are doing what the church in Thessalonica did. No, the churches that become models, you know what they are? They're the ones that have huge numbers of people and the parking lots are full and they do cool stuff Sunday morning. And it really feels good. And they got satellites. And they got this and they got that. That's the churches that have books written about them. You don't usually get books written about churches that are just doing what the Thessalonians were doing. And yet I would say to you, Where's God's heart? Now, I'm not saying you can't do that in a big church, okay? But I'm saying the books don't get written about the churches like this. They get written about the churches like, wow, look at that edifice. Man, do you hear what's happening there? Oh, man, that's so cool over there. They have have this every Sunday morning. You just kind of sit back in a theater seat and you just take it all in. That's what the books get written about. They became a model to all the believers. Verse 8 and 9, the Lord's message rang out. And I, I don't know if you think of anything that rang out. I think of like a fire alarm. I think of like a big bell on an old steam locomo- locomotive. It rang out. It wasn't some quiet little message. It wasn't unnoticed. It was making a big what do you call that when you put a, a rock in a pond? 
making a big one of them, okay? Because it may have been a little pedal, but pebble, but it has this great big ripple, big um, effect. And you all know that um, when you do that, those ripples go on forever, don't you? Go on for eternity. They're imperceptible. It's like a sound wave, but it keeps going on forever and ever. The Lord's message rang out, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere. And everybody could see, and this is in the text too, that they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. What does that mean? That means they turned from the things that everybody else was doing. They turned from the love of this present world that everybody else around them had. Nobody will ever care if you or I get religious. They don't mind us being religious. But when they see us turning from the things that everybody else does, they take notice. And they might not like it because you're reminding them of coming judgment. (laughs) You're the smell of death to them, the Bible says. You're this fragrance of life that people are being saved, and you are the stench of death to people that are not being saved. And when people see that we are willing to suffer for our faith, they take notice. They take notice when they see us turning from the idols of the world, the things of the world, and they notice us when they say, oh man, she's willing to suffer for for her faith. She's willing to be ridiculed. He's willing to lose his job over it. They take notice of that. They might criticize you with every breath they have, but they see it. They don't care if you're just getting religious. They don't care. But when you, you are changing, they take notice. They stand up and take notice. So there are three things that Paul notices about this little band that became believers and carried on the faith. Their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. And they are three great things for us to judge our lives by as well. Um, Don't measure your life by results. Don't measure your life by results. Results aren't up to us. As you follow in what you believe God has called you to do, whatever that looks like for you, we've talked a lot this morning about that word, call, Don't measure your life by the results you see. Results are up to God. They're not up to you. And you go back again to Paul saying, I don't know if I accomplished anything in Thessalonica. He wasn't measuring his life by results because he wasn't sure he had any results. He just kept doing what he was doing, proclaiming the gospel, focusing on Christ crucified. Um, and if I could only tell you one thing about serving Jesus, it would probably be don't measure your success by results because you're not always going to see them. You might, you might not, but they're up to you. God doesn't call you to go have results. He calls you to be obedient and go do what he told you to do. You're not responsible for results. I'm not responsible for whether our church is 500 people or 50 people. I'm responsible to be faithful, a faithful pastor. 
And you can see how easy it is when you start to say, well, I'm going to focus on results and gauge my self-satisfaction, my self-esteem on results. You will always, 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 always fail. So let's say you're called to be a pastor and you say, I want a church of 2,000. And God gives you a church of 2,000. You're going to feel great? No, because you know somebody has a church of 5,000. <laughs> I mean, this is how the flesh works. <laughs> Don't focus on results. God's called you to be a Sunday school teacher. You say, well, you know, I don't want to do this anymore because I only have one kid, and they don't always come. Not that we've ever heard anybody say that as a family life church. God didn't say do it only if you have 10 kids. If you have the call, teach Sunday school. Teach Sunday school. It's not your job to figure out if there's one kid there or 10 kids there. But can you be faithful and do that? Bill, your men's ministry. I know you like to have big crowds of men, and it hurts you when there's not. I know that feeling. But God just called you to do it and do it faithfully, whether one man shows up or 12 men show up. Never gauge your success by results. Gauge your success by, am I faithfully following what the Lord's asked me to do? Is my labor prompted by love? Am I, is my work produced by my faith in Jesus? Am I enduring because I have a hope? Mm. This is what is needed today in America, in the United States. And you can tell from what I preach today, you can tell what I preach every Sunday, the stirrings in my heart. You can tell, you can see them, you can smell them. We don't today in America need right-wing Christians or left-wing Christians. We don't need Christians who are joining bandwagons. You're jumping on somebody's bandwagon. Because when Christians jump on bandwagons, they always end up losing their focus. And they're going down a track somewhere where actually God's not down that track. You just got, you just got off on a sidetrack somewhere. You got your focus all, all wrong. I made up my mind years ago not to follow after fads of ministry. Um, the Christian church, especially, unfortunately, the Pentecostal part of the church, is filled with fads of ministry. And you can always tell fads because there will be 10 books written about them in a given year. And everybody's talking about this book. My personal preference is, by and large, to talk about this book. By, I'm not saying don't read books. I read books. But by and large, is not to get caught up. Have you read this book? Have you read this one? Well, no, I haven't. I think we ought to stick with this. I don't want to get caught up in fads of ministry, every wind of doctrine. We don't need Christians, like some of the ones mentioned before and some of the ones mentioned in the book of Revelation, who have lost their first love. We need genuine followers, genuine disciples of Jesus who have left the idols of the world and are following the command of the commander-in-chief we need those who are not afraid to confess Christ, who are really not worried of the ramifications. Now, I'm not saying we are disrespectful like a bull in a china shop. I'd never say that. But when the opportunity comes to confess Christ, we will confess him. 
with all respect and love for people around us, but we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. And if there's a ramification, I lose my job, I'm ridiculed, the family doesn't invite me to Thanksgiving next year, so be it. As far as I know, our family has invited me to Thanksgiving next year. Provided I wear a mask at this point. I don't know. <laughs> we need those who are not afraid to suffer for Christ. We need those who are motivated by love for God, not guilt. Not trying to make up for the past. Not, well, if I don't do it, nobody else will do it. And people who are inspired by a future hope. They know what's coming. And we know what's coming. One more thing. Paul says he continually remembers them before God for these things. So he doesn't just ponder them himself. He doesn't just say, well, on this, on this anniversary of my ministry, I'm really glad for the, for the good news I'm getting about Thessal- Thessalonica. No, it says he's remembering them before God. That means he's praying for them. He's interceding for them. If Paul, a man just like us, takes note and remembers the Thessalonians before God, how much more will God remember what we do for him? If, if a simple man can say, boy, I really see what, what you guys are doing there in Thessalonica, and, and I'm praying for you, how much more will God take note of all of our works, of all of our efforts, the ones that didn't seem to yield any fruit whatsoever, And how much more will he not just remember them, but even intercede for us? And yes, the Bible says that Jesus himself is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the saints. I'd like to close with a scripture from Hebrews. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And if you need anything to drive you on, maybe that verse will do it. Put it on your mirror, put it on your steering wheel, that God is not unjust. He will not forget what you, what you are doing for him and your labors of love. He will not forget your service to people, your service to the saints. Amen.